Have you ever lost something that couldn't be replaced? You know, we live in a, uh, a time where most of the things we buy can easily be replaced. If I break my vacuum cleaner, within the hour, I can have an identical one and replace it. But there are those things in life, whether material and, and often the immaterial things, that once gone are totally irreplaceable. Totally irreplaceable. As you know, we've been facing these wildfires in California the last couple weeks here. Um, and probably some of you have been affected by them, or at least people you know. And it's tragic. You've seen people's homes be burnt to the ground, businesses, and, and they've lost even worse than that. Family, friends. And if you've watched any coverage, news coverage of the fires, you kind of see that anytime the news covers these things, whether it's this fire or a previous one, they have this template they sort of follow where, you know, they'll have the person whose home has burnt down kind of digging through the ashes, looking for anything of monetary or sentimental value. And the anchor is voicing over, explaining who this person is and what's happened. And they cut to a shot of the homeowner in the foreground. And in the background is the still smoldering remains of their home. And everybody says the same kind of stuff, don't they? They say, you know, that this is the house my kids grew up in. This this is, we've lost everything. We had family photos, the irreplaceable things that are gone forever. We're not going to get them back. It's all gone. And, and it's tragic. It's truly tragic to watch those things. And when we've gone through those things ourselves, maybe not a fire, but other things that we've lost that can't be replaced so easily as a vacuum cleaner. It's a calamity. And so over the next two weeks, we're going to be looking in the book of Lamentations. We're going to look at the first three chapters of Lamentations. And what we're going to talk about is, what do God's people do in the face of calamity? When we lose that which cannot be replaced, how are we to grieve? What are we to make of utter devastation when it befalls us? And what are we supposed to think of our sovereign God when those things happen to me? So the book of Lamentations, it records a series of five poems. They're really more like funeral dirges. And um, they're for the fallen city of Jerusalem. And these God-inspired, thoughtful, carefully written expressions of grief come from a man who lived through the fall of that great city to the Babylonians in 587 B.C. See, Lamentations was written by the prophet Jeremiah. Just previous to Lamentations in your Bible, you have the book of Jeremiah, same guy. Um, and that's him warning the people of Jerusalem to repent of their sins, to turn back to God, lest this fate befall them. And now you have Jeremiah standing in the midst of the ashes of the city that he had been warning for 40 years, and God's judgment has come. And the calamity has befallen them. And they've been carried away into captivity by the Babylonians and the leadership of King Nebuchadnezzar. The city has been taken into captivity, but people have been killed in the process. Things have been destroyed. And many, many people have been left behind. And they're still dying in the streets because as follows a raid of any city in the ancient times, famine, disease, mourning, death, they all continue. And here's Jeremiah in the midst of it, giving us an eyewitness account of the terrible calamity that's befallen this great city. So what is a lamentation? 
You know, when I was a kid, I heard the word lamentation. I figured it had something to do with sheep. I, I recently found out it does not. <laughs> lamentation is a, it's a, it's a poem. It's like I said, a funeral dirge. It's a mournful song, something that might be sung at a funeral. So this is a funeral song for a fallen city, not just a person, but for a whole city. And it's an appropriate title for a book about mourning the loss of a city. Um, the Hebrew name for this book is actually a ka, which translates how or, or alas, uh, as like an interjection, exclamation. It's actually the first word of chapters one, three, or one, two, and four. How? You know, the first verse there. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. It's this exclamation of grief. How? You see, with the raiding armies left behind after they carried away the citizenry of Jerusalem into captivity was a hollowed-out husk of that glorious city. Death, disease, destruction, famine, and mourning now echoed through the empty streets. And as we read through the first chapter of Lamentations, I want you to listen and I want you to focus on the deep grief being communicated. Lamentations is written not just to convey history and facts. It does do that. But as a work of poetry, it's crafted to convey deep emotion. Just read along with me. We're going to read the whole first chapter of Lamentations here in one go. And listen to that grief. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she has become. She who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads of Zion mourn for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate, her priests groan, her virgins have been afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. Her foes have become the head, her enemies prosper, because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away, captives before the foe. From the daughter of Zion, all her majesty has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem remembers. In the days of her affliction and wandering, all the precious things that were hers from days of old, when her people fell into the hand of the foe, and there was none to help her. Her foes gloat over her. They mocked at her downfall. Jerusalem sinned grievously. Therefore, she became filthy. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future. Therefore, her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. The enemy has stretched out his hands over all her precious things. For she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those whom you forbade to enter your congregation. All her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. 
Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see. Is there any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger? From on high he sent fire into my bones. He made it descend. He spread a net for my feet. He turned me back. He has left me stunned, faint all the day long. My transgressions were bound into a yoke. By his hand they were fastened together. They were set upon my neck. He caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. The Lord rejoiced. All my mighty men in my midst, he summoned. The Lord rejected all my mighty men in my midst. He summoned an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden as in a winepress, the virgin daughter of Judah. For these things I weep, my eyes flow with tears, for a comforter is far from me, one to revive my spirit. My children are desolate, for the enemy has prevailed. Zion stretches out her hands, but there is none to comfort her. The Lord has commanded against Jacob that his neighbors should be his foes. Jerusalem has become a filthy thing among them. The Lord is in the right. For I have rebelled against his word, but hear all you peoples and see my suffering. My young women and my young men have gone into captivity. I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and elders perished in the city while they sought food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns, my heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious. In the street, the sword bereaves. In the house, it is like death. They heard my groaning, yet there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard my trouble. They're glad that you've done it. You have brought the day you announced. Now let them be as I am. Let all their evil doing come before you and deal with them, as you've dealt with me because of all my transgressions. For my groans are many, and my heart is faint. Do you feel the depth of the sadness in that poem? You can picture Jeremiah standing among the ruins and, and he's speaking on behalf of, you catch it, he's speaking on behalf of Jerusalem as if she's a woman and, and he goes back and forth speaking from different perspectives. The whole city's gone. Nothing will ever be the same. This is heavy, heavy mourning. It would be trivial to say that, oh, this is sadness. Now, this isn't just sadness. This is sorrow. This isn't just tears. This is weeping. This isn't just crying. No, this is grief. It is a heavy thing. It's the kind of grief that sits in your chest right before you weep. But you should know something about lamentations. This isn't just a, a stream of conscience diary of a mourner. This is a carefully crafted work of poetry. We know this because the, the form of Lamentations follows an alphabetic acrostic. So it's like Psalm 119. See, there's 22 verses in chapters 1 and 2 and 4. And each of those 22 verses begins with a different letter of the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. It's like the ABCs of grief. And, and people have you know, speculated, well, why, why would he do it that way. And some have said, well, you know, maybe it was uh, to aid memorization. I think that, that makes sense. You know, you, you remember, okay, what's next? It was Aleph, Beth. Oh yeah. And then you remember the next line. And some have said maybe Lamentations was written as a pedagogical tool. 
You know, they would teach school children the alphabet from Lamentations. Have you ever cried while reciting your ABCs? <laughs> that seems unnecessarily cruel to me. I don't know if that's true or not, but it seems at the very least that what perhaps he's communicating here is that from A to Z, this is all that can be said of the sorrow, the complete suffering that Jerusalem has undergone at the hands of God. It is complete. Even the meter of the poetry, it's lost for us in the English, but it, it's, it has this, it's called a kina meter, and, and it basically, the second line is shorter than the first. And so it's been described as a limping meter, or almost like a choking, sobbing meter. It would have, to the, to the Hebrew ear, when they would hear this read, produced almost a mournful effect, like you couldn't even get all the words out. And so the whole thing has been designed by Jeremiah for a purpose. And this is going to become evident when we get to chapter 3 next week, that it's, it builds towards something. There's a crescendo in the third chapter. But in these first two chapters... It's about the suffering. It's about the grief. So what do we do with a book like this? What do we do with Lamentations? It, it might be tempting to write it off as, you know, another interesting bit of history. This, you know, you have the history of what happened in the Bible to, to Jerusalem, and then you have a firsthand account. You know, you have, you have the history books about World War II, and then you have, you know, the diary of Anne Frank. But it's more than that. It's so much more than that because the Word of God, all of it, is for our upbuilding. There is something to be gained from studying the book of Lamentations. There's something to be learned here. But it also might be tempting to, to sentimentalize the book of Lamentations, and I think that that's what happens, sadly, a lot of times. All the good stuff in Lamentations is in the third chapter. Some of your favorite verses are there. His mercies are new each morning. And without having the full context and understanding the depth of the grief, you're not going to really fully grasp the height of what's happening in the middle of chapter 3 when he gets to that point. And that's why I want to take you through these first two chapters so that when we get to chapter 3 next week, you see just what a peak that that is. So here's the thing that the, the people are wondering in Jeremiah's day. Here's the thing Jeremiah is wondering. People have not just died. They haven't just been carried off into captivity. They have been plunged into a theological crisis. Because remember, this is the people of God. Certain promises have been given to them. They're expectant that God's going to continue to bless them. He's not going to forsake them. But now there's, the kingdoms have fallen, and there's nobody left. Are the promises still going to be true? With a calamity this momentous, this huge, is God still going to be faithful? Is he still going to keep his promise? That's the question mark lingering in the background all the way through Lamentations. Is this it? Has God utter, utterly forsaken us? And the interesting thing is these are the very questions we end up asking when disasters of even far less magnitude befall us. So this week, let's look at chapters 1 and 2. We're going to look at three realities we face when calamity befalls the people of God. And then next week in chapter 3, we'll elaborate more on, on the depth of uh, how followers of God are to grieve in faith in the midst of trial. So three realities we must face when calamity befalls the people of God. The first reality that we need to face when calamity befalls the people of God is the lost comfort. And that's what chapter 1 is all about, the lost comfort. The first chapter of Lamentations, as we just read, 
demonstrates the utter desolation and loneliness that hung over Jerusalem after she was destroyed. The author pictures Jerusalem as a destitute woman left completely alone because of her infidelity. Just look at those first two verses again with me. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she has become, she who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. So you can feel that, that loneliness, that, that sense of being forsaken. The hustling, bustling city of Jerusalem is now totally empty, except for the cries of mourning and death. It says in verse 4 that the roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are destitute. The very roads, as it were, as the people would ascend the, up to the, uh, the Temple Mount and bring their sacrifices, they'd sing those psalms of ascent. He's, he's picturing us the roads themselves are mourning because there's no festival, there's no singing, there's no joy anymore. There's just sadness. But what may never be again? It reminds me of that, that empty feeling you get if you've ever um, had a loved one die. And you, you, know, you, you go through the process where you bury them, you have the funeral, and it's this whole thing, and you're, your head's kind of spinning while you're going through the whole process of trying to take care of the funeral arrangements. And then the hard part comes. You come back to the house, and you come to their room, and everything is left as it was. Their clothes are still there. Their bed may still be unmade from the last time they woke up alive in it. And as you're going through their things, you, you come across old photos. And somehow, it's the photos of the happiest memories that bring you the deepest sorrow. And it's because you're not mourning about those memories. You're mourning about what could have been, what should have been, that that should have continued. You should have still had that joy. And that's what, what's happening here is all the, the joy of, of serving the Lord, of, of being together in the city of Jerusalem, it's all gone. It's all quiet. It's no more. Utter aloneness. And that is Jeremiah, he's personifying Jerusalem as having felt that. In fact, five times in chapter 1, he brings up that Jerusalem has no comforter. In verse 2, she has no one to comfort her. Verse 9, she has no comforter. Verse 16, for these things I weep, my eyes flow with tears, for a comforter is far from me. And in verse 17, Zion is pictured pathetically as, as stretching out her hands, begging, as it were, for help. Zion stretches out her hands, but there's no one to comfort her. How did Jerusalem, how did they end up in this comfortless state? How did they end up this way? You see hints of it in chapter 1. You probably caught on to that. It's, it's their sin. It's their sin. And, and, and Jeremiah admits it. In verse 2, uh, it mentions her weeping among her lovers, talking of Jerusalem as a woman. It's likely a reference to Jerusalem having uh, sought protection, security in other nations, to seeking out idols. It's that, you know, like a, an adulterous woman running from man to man, and then when she's abandoned by those men, she's also abandoned by the man she ran around on. That's what he's picturing. There's no one's left. No one's left to comfort her. 
She had many comforters, and now she has none. She is all alone because of her sin. And Jeremiah pictures Jerusalem as openly acknowledging her own guilt for this sin. It says in verse 5 that it is Yahweh who has afflicted her uh, for the, quote, for the multitude of her transgressions. In verse 8, it says Jerusalem sinned grievously, therefore she became filthy. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future, therefore her fall is terrible. And then he has the, the city asking passers-by in verse 12, Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see if there's any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. And there's this admission that it's, it's God who has bound up the transgressions of these people and given her into the hands of the Babylonians. And it's the Lord who has rejected her and summoned an enemy to destroy them. It says again, verse 15, the Lord has trodden as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah, damped her under his feet. And this loss of comfort, this, this loneliness and this recognition of sin drives Jerusalem to a feeble confession in verses 18 and 20. Again, Jeremiah speaking as Jerusalem confesses the sin of the nation. He says in verses 18 through 20, The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. But hear, all you peoples, and see my suffering. My young women and my young men have gone into captivity. I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and elders perished in the city while they sought food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious. In the street, the sword bereaves, and in the house, it's like death. She's calling out to the Lord in pain to offer her relief. People are dying in the streets, and in the houses, they're falling likely due to the disease and the famine which has accompanied the aftermath of this raid. So any time calamity befalls the people of God. And I understand, and we'll talk about this more, this is different because, it, because they're suffering for their sin. They're, they have been turned over to God's wrath for this. But there are some things in here that are true universally when a calamity befalls the people of God. And one of those is that any time a calamity befalls the people of God, one of the realities is a loss of comfort. Obviously, not just the loss of comfort in the tragedy itself. That's that's clear. But very often, when we face a tragedy, we seek comfort in others, and it's hard to find. We may face the scorn of others or just the ambivalence, and we may face the silence of God. You, you, you feel that, that, that he has been removed from you somehow, and he doesn't offer you any consolation. And like Jerusalem, we cry out for relief and we're only met with nothing. And we wonder, my soul is already so disquieted by this tragedy. Why would you, Lord, compound this grief by, by refusing to give me comfort, by, by bringing someone into my life to, to help me through this? We find ourselves maybe even feeling like, like uh, the rich man in Jesus' story of the rich man of Lazarus, just wanting a drop of water from someone's fingertip, just some little morsel of comfort to help us through this. And yet no succor comes. 
So let's further consider the source of these trials, that we might better understand where comfort might be found in the midst of tragedy, and even why God might remove it from us to begin with. So the first reality we've seen in chapter one here, the first reality we must face when calamity befalls God's people is the loss of comfort. Now chapter two goes on to identify the second reality, which is the legitimate cause, the legitimate cause. So the second reality we face when calamity befalls the people of God is the legitimate cause. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever made an enemy for yourself? Maybe it was by mistake, maybe it was because you did something really rotten, but you ended up having someone that truly hated your guts and you didn't know how to deal with it. That happened to me on accident. Well, it's kind of my fault. So (laughs) when I was in high school, I was over at a friend's house and we were hanging out and he had a picture of him and another one of his friends. And uh, in this photo, his, his other friend is wearing... Uh, like a studded, like a metal studded belt and these metal studded, uh, what do you call this? Bracelet, yeah. And then like a dog collar with metal studs on it. And I jokingly said to my friend, I said, oh, I really like your friend's jewelry. And uh, he was like, ha ha. And I was just joking. I wouldn't have said that to the guy's face, right? (laughs) But my friend, being an excellent friend, told this guy that I had said this and that I had made fun of his doggy jewelry. So this guy began harassing me. He uh, was telling his friend, hey, I need to fight that guy. We need to set up a fight. I was like, I don't really want to fight. (laughs) And uh, and then he found me online and began to send me messages and stuff and threatening me and saying all this stuff. And I'm just like, oh, man, what have I gotten myself into? I made myself an enemy out of a guy just because I've made fun of his cool, tough guy look. And so we didn't go to the same school, so I didn't really have occasion to run into him that often or ever. I had never met him before. But my friend, again, being an excellent friend, had shown him a picture of me (laughs) just in case we should come across each other living in the same town. And so it was that when I would go out to to dinner, I'd go to the store and stuff, I was always kind of just wondering, like, am I going to run into this guy (laughs) and what's going to happen when I do? Well, eventually it did happen. I, one night I, I went to the uh, video store to, to pick up a movie, and as I'm walking in, guess who's walking out? And we lock eyes. He knows who I am. I know who he is. He's wearing his signature doggy bracelets. <laughs> <laughs> and to my sublime satisfaction, he is a good 12 inches shorter than me and about 30 to 50 pounds lighter. And he just puts his head down and keeps walking. And I came back home that night to a message uh, from him online that said, hey, it was nice to meet you tonight. We should hang out sometime. (laughs) And thus I made a friend. (laughs) You know, having an enemy, the scriptures say that we're we're supposed to live at peace with everyone and as far as it's up to us. But sometimes there's things we, we can't do about that. Sometimes there's people who hate our guts for no good reason. And sometimes having an enemy like that isn't a big deal, especially if they're a short guy who just has bad taste in jewelry. But when it's real bad is when you're enemies with somebody who is much, much stronger than you. And in fact, the worst enemy you could possibly have is God. The worst enemy you could possibly have, the one person you don't want against you 
is the God of the universe. And that is the position that Judah has found herself in in chapter 2. The city of David has made herself enemies with the living God. Because who's to blame for Jerusalem's present predicament? We might say, we might say it's Babylon because, you know, they came in and they invaded. And that, that is true. They did come in and invade and they, they carried them off into captivity. We might say it's Jerusalem's sin and that's true too. But in chapter 2, the author pins God's righteous anger against Jerusalem as the cause of their present turmoil. Unashamedly puts it on God that he has done this. Let's read chapter 2. Lamentations chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the inhabitants of Jacob. In his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand. In the face of the enemy, he has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy, with his right hand set like a foe. And he has killed all who were delightful in our eyes. In the tent of the daughter of Zion, he has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord has become an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid its ruins in strongholds and has multiplied in the daughters of Judah mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste his booth like a garden, laid in ruins his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath and in his fierce indignation has spurned king and priest. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raised a clamor in the house of the Lord, as on the day of festival. The Lord determined to lay it in ruins, the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying he caused rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. The king and princes are among the nations, and the law is no more. And her prophets find no vision from the Lord. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the devastation of the daughter of my people, because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. They cry to their mothers, where is bread and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. What can I say for you? To what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is as vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. 
All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? All your enemies rail against you. They hiss, they gnash their teeth, they cry, we have swallowed her. Ah, this is the day we longed for. Now we have it, we see it. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. Their heart cried to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Arise, cry out in the night, at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. Look, O Lord, and see. With whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. You summoned, as if to a festival day, my terrors on every side. And on the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. Those whom I held and raised, my enemy destroyed." So this second reality that we must face when calamity befalls the people of God is the legitimate cause. Who has ultimately brought this fate? Jeremiah owns it. He says, in an ultimate sense, it's the Lord who's done this against us. He has brought this upon us. And it is horrible. It's devastating. There's this amazing honesty about the reason for it. We've sinned, we've refused to repent, and now the Lord has punished us. And stress is laid upon God's disposition against Jerusalem and her people. He's not only withdrawn his protection, he's turned against them. Verse 4 says, he bent his bow like an enemy, with his right hand set like a foe. He aimed his arrow at Jerusalem, at his own people. How has God turned on his own people? He has become an enemy. And this is a complete reversal of God's relationship with his people, isn't it? It's an absolute reversal of what it has been. Israel, his, his footstool, as he calls him in verse 1, he no longer remembers. And this isn't remembering like, a, like recollection. This is a, a covenantal term. God frequently is said to remember his covenants when he acts in a miraculous way for his people. So you see this in um, Genesis 8, says uh, in verse 1 of Genesis 8, but God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark, and God made a wind blow over the earth, and the water subsided. Again, in uh, Exodus, in when he decides to bring Israel out of bondage to Egypt, he says in Exodus 2.24, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And now Jeremiah is saying, he is not remembering that. He is choosing not to act on their behalf. Quite the opposite. What's interesting about this term footstool, too, he has in verse 1 here, he doesn't remember his footstool, is that frequently throughout Israel's history, 
the earth's been called his footstool, uh, Israel's been called his footstool, and specifically the temple and the Ark of the Covenant have been called his footstool. And he's saying he doesn't remember this anymore, which seems to be how he's using it here. Verse 7 says, the Lord has scorned his altar. So the place where they would bring sacrifice, he's disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. He's destroyed his own dwelling place among them. And that's to say, Jeremiah is indicating that it is as though God has withdrawn his presence from his people. And this by great force, he's become their enemy. So now instead of pouring out his wrath on Israel's enemies, as he had in times past, he's pouring his wrath out on his own people. Verse 17 says this, The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. So let's talk about this. It is not always the case that our suffering is a result of our personal sin. We know this. Oftentimes, it can be. It can be, it says in, in Hebrews uh, twelve six that he disciplines and chastens every son that he loves. So it can be that the Lord may providentially appoint a time of suffering for you to uh, purge out some sinful way in you so that you would repent of that and he drive you away from it. So our first look when we face a trial should, should be inward and say, is there, is there some sinful way in me that the Lord is, is trying to, to bring out through this trial? Has he employed this trial to, to do that for me? But other times, and oftentimes, the calamities that befall us have nothing whatsoever to do with our own sin. You know, it doesn't, we've, I, haven't, I got in that car accident. It wasn't because I lied earlier that day, right? But sin, nevertheless, is still always the cause of every tragedy, in an ultimate sense, right? There wouldn't be tragedy. There wouldn't be tears. There wouldn't be pain. There wouldn't be calamities and these big fires everywhere if it weren't for man's rebellion against God. Sin entered the world and suffering because of man. So even when we've looked and found that the trial does not appear to be because of some sin in my life, we may still remember that sin in general has made this so, and that should offer us some uh, chance to, to be humble in that regard. But above all, we need to call to mind that it is, in the ultimate sense, the Lord who is in control of all trials, all calamities, all disasters. And we need to look this truth straight in the face like Jeremiah does. I mean, you cannot get more horrendous in your descriptions of this, and he's attributing these things to God in the Holy Scriptures. And if we are truly to understand the sovereignty of God in all things, we need to face up to the fact that God is in control of everything. And we might try to get around this by saying, well, he, he permits such and such to happen. He permits such and such to happen. But even if you say that, you still are saying that he had the power to prevent it from happening. Right? So what do we do with this? He's sovereign over everything. Listen to this. Isaiah 45, 7 says, speaking for God, I form the light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. And that's not to say that God sins or that he's the chargeable cause of evil, that he's twisting someone's arm to make them commit a sin. But in his meticulous sovereignty over all things, he ordains all things that come to pass. 
even calamities, even the destruction of Jerusalem, even these fires, even your trial. And what I want to say to you is that that is not something for you to shy away from in horror because in that truth is your only hope for deliverance. And I'll explain this to you. But first, if you're not a child of God, if you have not repented of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ and turned to him as your only hope of salvation, let this truth drive you to despair. Let it drive you to despair because what I'm about to say isn't for you. You are still against God. He is still your enemy. What you need to do is put both hands up, wave the white flag of surrender. This is not a fight that you're going to win. This is not an enemy that you want to have. So repent of your sinfulness, your rebellious disposition towards God and turn to Jesus Christ in full faith, trusting in his perfect righteous life, trusting in his perfect sacrifice for sin and in his vindicating resurrection for you. That's where hope is found, trusting in him. It's a blood feud and it's only the blood of Christ that's going to atone for your sin against God and render you forgiven and righteous in his sight. But for the believer, for, for the child of God, for, for you, this trial, even if it is to chasten you, is ultimately from God who is your friend. He's doing it for your ultimate good. And that is true even if the instrument of that chasing is ungodly. You think the Babylonians were conspiring with God and like, we want to, we, hey God, we don't want to do this thing. It would be bad. No, he's using them just like he did the Assyrians. It's the rod of his anger to punish his people. They're still, they're still uh, chargeable for their own sins. They're still guilty of their own sins. But God is using that to accomplish his purposes against Jerusalem. The point is this. The Lord in his sovereignty rules over every single calamity. And rather than causing us to be repulsed, that should give us great comfort. Because it means that God who is on my side does not have a universe that can thwart him. He's not a God who's just out there trying his best and he really does care about you. But man, the situation just didn't work out so well. And I'm sorry, but your house is burned down. Or I'm sorry, you, you've, you've lost your son or your daughter. What a horrible world to live in where we serve a God who's less than sovereign. What a ridiculous, repulsive notion. But to understand God's sovereignty, we also have to face up that there are bad things that happen and he's in control. He rules over those things too. And he can and will appoint and bend every tragedy for my ultimate good so that though it may hurt, for the believer, the calamity is not the end of comfort. And as we'll see, this wasn't the end for Jerusalem and Israel too. But I don't want to give away next week. Here's the most comforting part in all of this. If you acknowledge that God is sovereign over even the calamity, then you see that the cause is also the solution. To where can I appeal if there is a universe that is so out of sight of God's control that things can befall me that he can't help? Am I going to pray to God? He couldn't stop it to begin with. Why would I ask him? But if I know that he's sovereign even over that, then that's who I can turn to. That's who I can trust in the midst of it. That is the one who can bring the relief from it. 
because he's the one who sovereignly ordained it to come to pass to begin with. In verses 18 through 22 here, he, this is what the prophet does. He urges the people to pray to Yahweh for relief. Even though he's just said he's the one who's brought it. He says, turn to God and ask him to relieve you. He alone can deliver. Verse 19, it says, arise, cry out in the night. At the beginning of the night watches, pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children. Christian, this is true whether your suffering is chastening from from the Lord for your sin or simply a trial intended to grow your faith. When we affirm that God is the ultimate cause, that he oversees these things, this should not be discouragement, it should be an encouragement because we have someone to turn to for relief, someone with enough power to change it, enough power to bring relief. And we recognize that as long as the trial persists, there is a God-ordained reason for it to be there in our lives. Just imagine if it were true that calamity and disaster were things that God couldn't control. Some of us would have us believe. In their view, God is pictured as loving but helpless. He's tried his best, but he can't be blamed for it. And in the very same breath, these people would tell us to turn to that weakling deity to save us from that which he was powerless to prevent. What utter hopelessness that image of God presents. No, my God is a strong tower, an ever-present help in times of trouble. He has the power to overcome it, and he has the power to sustain me through it because he has the power to bring it, and there's a purpose in it. And the overt, unabashed reality which Lamentations presents is that the Babylonian exile, with all the death, all the destruction, all the grief that came with it, was an act of God. And to them, the horror of it all was that he had done it. And it now appeared to them that he'd abandoned them entirely, right? The relationship had been severed. But as we're going to see, when you're dealing with a covenant-keeping God, the relationship is never entirely severed when he's made a promise that he's promised never to forget. This is not yet the end for God's people. For Yahweh has made inviolable promises to Israel, just as he has to us. The people of God, therefore, must continue to trust and appeal to him even when all hope seems lost. And that brings us to the final reality we must face when calamity befalls the people of God, and that is the lingering question. The lingering question. This is what we're going to talk about in depth next week, and we've touched on it throughout, but the thing that made these events more catastrophic than even the actual blood and destruction were the theological implications for Israel. The people knew that God had sworn to bless him. He knew that he was going to make them a great nation, that he was going to raise up Messiah from among her, and that he promised never to forsake her. But now the kingdom had fallen. The people had sinned grievously, and they deserved punishment. They knew that, but had this put an end to his promise? Was it all over? Had God utterly abandoned them? And isn't that what we ask? Isn't that what we ask? God, where are you? In the midst of this, where are you? It's the same question we ask. Has the God I've trusted for so long simply abandoned me? Where's his hand of favor? Where have gone his tender mercies? I think the, the musician Andrew Peterson, he, he captures it well. He has this song called The Silence of God, and this is the first verse. He said, it's enough to drive a man crazy. It'll break a man's faith. It's enough to make him wonder if he's ever been sane. When he's bleating for comfort, from thy staff and thy rod. 
and the heavens only answer is the silence of God. That's the experience of so many of us when we go through trials, tribulations, calamity. It seems that when the sorrow is the deepest and the pain's the greatest, when the desire for comfort has reached its zenith, there's nothing but silence from God. There's no help. So the question lingers and it hangs in the air. Are his promises still true? Is he still faithful? And so we're going to talk about that next week. We've seen the realities we must face when calamity befalls God's people, the lost comfort and the legitimate cause. And it's this third reality, the lingering question, which we will address next week as we look at chapter three of Lamentations. Would you please pray with me? Oh, Father, we praise you that you are nothing less than a sovereign God, that you are righteous and that you're, you do punish sin, that there is justice that will be meted out to those who persist in rebellion. And we praise you for it because it magnifies your character as a just judge. And we praise you because you rule over all things with perfect goodness. And Lord, we praise you that you are faithful, that you keep your promises, that you do not break your word, you are unchanging. And Father, I pray for all of us, anyone here who is presently in the midst of a trial, a tribulation, or some great calamity, I pray that you would give them faith to, even in the midst of that, to look to you for hope and for comfort. Not blindly, not, not without reason, but because you are worthy of such a faith. Because you've shown yourself again and again, even when the circumstances don't look like that you are there, you've shown yourself that you're still yet faithful. Help us this week, Lord, as we seek to live as Christians in this world. Help us to glorify you in all of our actions, our attitudes, and our words. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this message from our guest speaker. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Please note, law prohibits the unauthorized copying or distributing of this audio file. Requests for permission to copy or distribute are made in writing to the Grace Life Pulpit. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit. All rights reserved.